Hello and welcome to Camp Kaiju Monster Movie Reviews. We're your hosts, Vincent Hannum, Matt Levine, and we're talking about all our favorite monster movies, the good, the bad, and the downright campy, and asking if they stand the test of time. Kaiju, creature features, space invaders, the supernatural, and everything in between. All strange beasts welcome here. Camp Kaiju is sponsored by BanditsEmporium.com, where you can shop exclusive monster-inspired t-shirts with part of the proceeds supporting this show. BanditsEmporium.com. Hit the link in our bio. As they say, we sell shirts. Hey, as Camp Kaiju says, stay campy, everybody. Hi, everybody. Thank you again for coming. I think we'll get started with our uh, recording and discussion here. Uh, can everybody hear okay? Hear the... Cool, thank you. Uh, yeah, another round of applause for Frankenstein. Um, so yeah, so what we're going to do, like Vincent and I will be talking, but if you have any like thoughts, any interjections, please feel free to uh, call them out. Um, you know, this isn't school, so you don't have to like raise your hand or anything, but um, we will kind of leave some time for the end. We want all of you to contribute to our conversation of the good, the bad, and the campy. Um, so definitely that will be a group discussion, but if, you, if there are any like thoughts or uh, input that you want to provide before then, please feel free. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, um, so this is Camp Kaiju Monster Movie Reviews. We are a podcast now for over a year uh, where we talk about our favorite monster movies, and we break that down with the good, the bad, and the downright campy. We evaluate our monster movie choices and see if they stand the test of time. So uh, we, you know, it being uh, Halloween and, and all, we thought, let's do one of the classic universal monster movies. Uh, and we chose Frankenstein. Before we get into that, I want to let you all know we're going to talk about our personal histories with the film. We're going to go into the production history itself of the movie, some of the cast and crew, and then some of the themes um, that James Whale, the director, had, was certainly exploring, and then maybe we picked up on more or less. Okay, yeah. Matt, <laughs> what was your personal history with this film? Uh, thank you. So I feel I think I first saw Frankenstein maybe like 20 years ago, maybe even 25. Uh, I was first getting into film probably in like middle school and seeing every like all the big classics, you know, everything on like the AFI top 100 and before I branched out beyond that. But but Frankenstein for sure is like one of the most uh, regarded as one of the most classic horror movies of all time. It definitely I would say cinematically the whole theme of um the monsters are more human than the human characters, and like the humans are the real monstrous ones. At least in movies, that goes back to this movie. This is kind of the, the formative enunciation of that theme, I would say. Um, so yeah, I saw this probably when I was in middle school. Didn't really understand like its impact or its influence. I've seen it several more times since then. Um, finally actually just read the novel by Mary Shelley for the first time, I want to say two years ago, so relatively recently, um, and then watched the movie again after, after reading the novel. And, uh, you know, they're very different, but I feel like both of them, like I feel like the novel Frankenstein does for horror literature what this movie does for horror cinema. What is your personal history with this movie? Um, really, I, I, I just simply grew up on this film. Um, I don't remember the first time I watched it. It was just simply always available in my house on, uh, if not, uh, you know, renting it from the video store. We were recording it and its sequels on TV, you know, on TCM, AMC, when they did show older movies like this. Um, I've read the novel a couple times. I've written my own play. I 
am unabashedly in love with this film specifically. With that said, I don't think any art is sacred. So if you all hated this film, that's cool too. And I want to know why uh, when we get to get to that section. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, I, I haven't seen this film in quite a few years, actually. And I wanted to wait and watch it with fresh eyes tonight. And wow, since, since I have been looking at monster movies and horror movies with more of a, an, an analytical eye, there's so much more than I ever picked up on just watching it. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about those themes. Yeah. So, so everyone, um, I told Matt that I was like, we should bring Frankenstein to the show. And he was like, okay, cool. And I said, how about the 1931 classic? And he said, nah. <laughs> Let me, and this is what, my, Matt is so amazing. He will watch a plethora of movies in no time. Like, he came back five days later and was like, so I watched this version, this version, this version, this version, and this version, and I mean, I'll let you talk about it. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. Um, uh, so first of all, just about your play, it's still being performed in Chicago, uh, your version of Frankenstein yeah, that you wrote, yeah, so yeah. through next weekend, right? Yeah. Uh, so if any of you are able to get, get to Chicago to watch it, um, please do. But yeah, so so you recommended this movie, and in, in true like stubborn film nerd fashion, I was like, no, we need to pick something obscure that nobody's ever heard of before. <laughs> uh, so I tried to watch some like um, Hammer horror versions, um, you know, various other, uh, you know, like the Flesh for Frankenstein, the Andy Warhol produced one <laughs> from the '70s, uh, which are you know, there's value to those for sure. But but yeah, like the more I watched, the more I was like, you know what? Let's go back to basics. The James Whale 1931. There's a reason it's considered one of the best, most formative horror movies ever. Uh, it was a lot of fun to watch it in here with the crowd tonight. Um, you know, the last couple times I've watched it have been at home, and there's just nothing like the theatrical experience. So it was very cool. Yeah. Uh, it was also fun to, I thought, to watch the silent version beforehand, uh, which was produced by Thomas Edison's studio. Um, I, if you don't mind me looking at my phone here real quick, <laughs> it was actually written and directed by J. Searle Dolly. And, you know, you could say that, like, maybe there's not too much direction going on just because, like, the film language is pretty crude in, in that film in a pretty interesting way, I would say. Um, but uh, so the reason I bring that up, I just think it's interesting to start with that film and then kind of see how much film form had advanced in, like, the 20 years in between the two versions because um, it's, it's night and day. And I just think that that era from, like, the 1910s through the 1930s had like more advancements in like film style and film grammar than any other period in cinema history. So I thought that was kind of fun to watch. Yeah, and I think that we can kind of segue into production history with the 1910 Edison film. That was actually the first time uh, Mary Shelley's novel was portrayed on film. So that was the first time anyone had seen the monster on camera. And I'm not, I'm not going to say it like made a splash because it didn't because these were short films that were just largely relegated then to, I don't know, a dustbin. And actually that uh, 1910 had been a lost film until the 1980s and then somebody found it in their attic and then held on to it. And then it was only like in the past 15 or 20 years, somewhere in there, don't quote me, but uh, it finally like got its... Um, sort of public wide release again after nearly 100 years. So I found it on YouTube and I was like, yep, we're going to show that one beforehand. Would have seen it back in 1910? Would they have gone to short films? Would it have played? Like, how, I guess I don't know a lot about how people viewed films back in that time period. 
yeah, I think, yeah, people would have gone to see it at, like, a Nickelodeon, probably. Like, at that time, it would have been, like, a really small, like, storefront theater. And, like, people didn't really necessarily necessarily go to see specific movies. It was kind of just they would come and go whenever they wanted. There would probably be numerous other shorts that were playing on the same bill. Um, and it wasn't really until later in the teens, like, Birth of a Nation, when, like, multi-real movies that were more than an hour became, like, sort of a... Uh, a feature, you know, you go for for the evening to see that particular film. But yeah, like probably at the time in 1910 when the original Frankenstein came out, people didn't really know that they were going to see it. Um, which, you know, and like, I don't know, the the creature, the monster, I think looks pretty fascinating in that movie uh, in some good and bad ways. I think the moment when it first appears, which seems to be like they filmed something burning and then played it in reverse is what I thought it was. And it kind of reminded me of that part in Raiders of the Lost Ark when like everybody sees like the spirit coming out of the ark and then their faces melt off. I was like, oh, Raiders of the Lost Ark got that from this. <laughs> I don't actually think that's true, but I was reminded of that. Um, yeah, so um, it was it was cool to see that for sure. Yeah. Would you say though that like, especially with that like 1910 Frankenstein, that it was that a time when it was still like just the novelty to go and see something like this rather than really being like trying to be captivated and moved by a story? I think so. Do yeah. You, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, to just flash forward then a little bit to the 1931 Frankenstein to that kind of to that um, point. Yeah, now now we're getting into uh, a feature length Frankenstein adaptation and nobody again had seen this creature portrayed like this on camera before. The 31 movie was adapted from a stage play, a 1927 play that was of course itself adapted from Mary Shelley's 1818 novel. And Universal Studios at this time, this was, now we think of Universal Studios, they're the, the, the horror studio. And this was when that was starting. So right before Frankenstein, they had just released Dracula with Bela Lugosi in 1930 or 31. Dracula was such a huge smash, they rushed Frankenstein into production. And just like Dracula, it was another smash. Uh, that's not an understatement. I mean, we see the image of Boris Karloff's monster is the image of pop culture, not the 1910 Frankenstein. Uh, so there's a lot of cast and crew that goes into that legacy that I want to talk about. But Matt, was there anything else with uh, production background? Uh, it was a critical and commercial success when it came out. Like you said, it did kind of, like this and Dracula, saved Universal Studios. Um, obviously spawned numerous sequels and kind of spinoffs from there. Um, I, I think a fascinating thing to talk about, and maybe if, if you were going to go go into this, then uh, you can take over the mic, but the the casting of Boris Karloff was kind of a fascinating backstory to this movie as well. Okay. Um, yeah, because Bela Lugosi, like initially with the success of Dracula, it was kind of just assumed in a way that Bela Lugosi would return to appear in Frankenstein. Um, and actually, initially, the the script, the, which was initially written for, for Frankenstein, was very different. Uh, the monster was supposed to be kind of just a killing machine with no sympathy whatsoever. And initially, Bela Lugosi was actually supposed to play the um, Colin Clive character of Henry Frankenstein in this movie. So... Um, there's some like kind of controversy or like rumor uh, as to what actually happened with Bela Lugosi not appearing in this film. Some people say that he chose not to appear in it, um, and there is some validity to that because he did not like the initial script and what it did to the original Frankenstein story. 
Um, some other people say that like when James Whale came on board, he did not like that initial script. He demanded uh, a rewrite, which was closer to the novel of, of Frankenstein. And you know, it was kind of mutually agreed upon that Bela Lugosi would leave. Uh, and that's kind of what led to Boris Karloff's casting as the monster. And Karloff wasn't unknown at this time. He was just an extra at the Universal Studios backlot. He had been acting since maybe before the 20s, but certainly throughout the 20s, just as a featured extra. And then, so uh, so moving along with the casting, um, so Bela Lugosi did not return from Dracula, but Dwight Fry did, who played Renfield in Dracula. Dwight Fry played Fritz, the hunchback assistant. And then we had Edward Van Sloan returning. Edward Van Sloan played the older doctor, uh, Henry's mentor. And Van Sloan played Van Helsing in the Dracula uh, just that same year. So yes, as for Colin Clive, it starts with the director, James Whale. Uh, so James Whale was a noted director at this time. He had been working on stage. And he kind of was one of those directors who worked with his people. Colin Clive was one of those. They had done stage plays in England and on Broadway and brought his, his boy on, on to the project. Now, James Whale, uh, I just love talking about. He is, um, not only did he make a number of high-profile horror pictures at this time, but these days he's really highly regarded as sort of a, a queer icon. He was an outwardly gay man at a time when that was not a thing. And there are several other films where you can see that sort of mark in his films. I, I want to bring it up in this film because I was, I, was, I was trying to read Henry Frankenstein through, through that sort of lens. And I think there is an argument to make that, um, yeah, that Henry may, may be gay himself. I'm not sure. Uh, certainly, he is not the one most interested in his bride. Um, but, but, but back to James Whale, uh, certainly uh, other films of his, the sequel to this, Bride of Frankenstein, arguably an even greater, uh, uh, highly regarded film, I would say. Uh, yeah, question. Well, that's, uh, I was, I'm glad you got to the sequel. I mean, I don't think it's a hot take to say it's one of the first sequels that's arguably superior to the original. Talking about the queer themes, the presence of Ernest Dessager, uh, brilliant, you know, a whale's direction in the second one. It's, it, it move, it's, you know, shorter. Moves so much faster, and Karloff is even more sympathetic uh, in the second one. And you get Elsa Lanchester at the very end. Yeah. But, you know, what's your take on, on comparing the two as a Frankenstein fan? Do you, do you also think, is, do you prefer one or the other? That is such a great question. I think, yes, I, I agree generally that, no, not generally, I agree that uh, Bride of Frankenstein is is a more, it, it, it challenges you more to think more deeply and critically about the messaging going on. As I was watching Frankenstein just now, I was seeing sort of the, the seeds being planted for Bride of Frankenstein. I was seeing some of the same themes um, in, in Frankenstein's relationship with, with his assistant, with um, the men in his life, including the monster. But in Bride, James Whale digs even deeper into that um, in some really macabre and even campier ways. 
100%. Um, everyone should watch Bride of Frankenstein. I also want to shout out The Old Dark House yes. by James Whale. He directed that prior to this Frankenstein. Uh, there's no monsters in it, like, per se, right? Uh, but it is just a great haunted house story that everyone should watch. Anything to add to that? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I just second the old Dark House uh, shout out. Um, I would also say that I prefer Bride of Frankenstein, so I'll just throw that out there. Um, although it's, you know, it's, uh, um, both of them are among my favorite horror movies ever, so it's like choosing between your favorite pet or something like that, you know, it's kind of impossible. Um, sorry for the feedback, but yeah, the old Dark House is like, I, uh, as well as Bride of Frankenstein, it's kind of like a horror comedy at a time when like, uh, you know, like that kind of blend of genres wasn't really being done all that much, so I think it's very influential in that way. The camp, like Vincent mentioned, is... Um, is really entertaining, really wild, and fun to watch. Um, so yeah, there. I see another hand up there. Um, speaking of brides, what do you think Elizabeth sees in Frankenstein? Like, why this man mocked her? Yeah. What does Elizabeth see in Henry? Well, she has a couple other men she could choose from. <laughs> Henry's handsome. No, Henry's passionate. He's, he's brilliant. He really likes what he does. He engages. There are things. He's rich. Okay, okay. Uh, I'll just repeat some of that for the sake of uh, the audio. So we have some arguments saying that Henry is, he's handsome. Uh, Colin Clive, he had those dark, soulful eyes. Hey, you know, he's clean cut. He's brooding. Um, he, he is rich. His father is probably going to give them a huge amount of money, uh, in, in his will. So, yeah, but like, but honestly, what is more than that? Like, those are very superficial, I, you know, not that they don't have their merits, but, 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 you know, he does lock her in a room. He, she is very second nature to him. He does not return, or he, he, he's more willing to hide out in a dank castle than, then be with his bride, and he and he's leaving her to Victor, who I think is a sap myself. But <laughs> but at least he's there. At least he's there. I agree with her sentiment. Do you think it's uh, do you think it's more of a product of the time, or do you think James Whale and the, do you think they're trying to say something to the fact that from her perspective, it, it, she's not really given much of a character. She's not really given a, her motivation from yeah what she wants in this relationship isn't very well developed. Do you think that's just a product? It's a it's a 70 minute film from 1931 or is there or can we look to see if there's something there for why that is? Yeah, so I think like James Wales like his main intention and what he was interested in was not the romantic subplot and I I think that goes back to what Vincent was saying. Um, I also think Colin Clive is an interesting person because he was a closeted gay man who sadly committed suicide 6 years after this movie came out. Um, so I think maybe for both actor and director, the romantic subplot was kind of second nature. It was, you know, uh, they probably felt like they had to include it being a Hollywood film at that time, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I think you're right that like it kind of was just not really considered very strongly, but sort of like awkwardly inserted, you know? It's a definitely unfortunate that Elizabeth does not have a stronger character than she does in this film. Um, and I think unfortunately we see that in a lot of kind of damsels in distress sort of roles, especially in universal horror movies at this time. Um, so yeah, another hand up there. Yeah, I, I want to know what you think about Frankenstein's dad. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to save him for the campy portion, but uh, I'll, uh, do you have any thoughts about that? 
What a hoot. Um, I, I, thought, I thought Fritz, the assistant, was the campiest part of this movie. But then we had um, Herr Frank, Baron Frankenstein. And I was just like, this is, for, that character, I think, speaks to the stage elements of this movie, right? It was adapted from a play. You could see, you know, the, there's a lot of um, shots of just one room, one set piece, and everyone's doing their, their things. They're blocking with the furniture. And the father just fits the bill of the comedic, you know, curmudgeonly old man character that you see in a lot of, lot of stories. Um, I think he cares for his son. He's, he's willing to go out in the storm to, to save him. Uh, I don't think he cares about a lot of other people. But, but yeah, I, I, and, 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 and again, he cares more about Elizabeth seemingly than his son does. So... I, I don't know. I just I just keep coming back to that. Like when 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 Henry locked um, Elizabeth in the room, <laughs> that was funny. That was I think intentionally funny and speaks to their relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of that, I think that sets up one of the great visual gags in the picture, and that is um, it's actually in the short, which I couldn't believe. It's like the bridal anxiety, the bridal jitters, where you see. Yeah, if we're gonna get a little Freudian, the, the monster phallus and, and terrifying her on her wedding night. Mm. And kind of making a mockery of the honeymoon, which, yeah, noting all the queer aspects, I think that's one of the best moments for me. Mm -hmm. so, uh, subversion of the prototypical heterosexual union that Whale is poking fun at. And, and then Elizabeth, that shot of her laying like draped over the bed we don't see her getting into like into that position. I don't. I don't think, right? So, you know, like probably the movie is asking us to assume that she fainted, but like it's a very sexualized pose. So, like, but the fact that we don't actually see her faint, I think, is kind of like begging that interpretation. You know, uh, it's a great point. Yeah. Um, yeah. With I, I kind of wanted to touch on you know like James Whale and Colin Clive, and obviously the the metaphorical power of the, the creature and the story of Frankenstein. You know, I just think it's fascinating that when Mary Shelley wrote the novel, um, one of the big differences is that the creature does become educated and, you know, is having long philosophical conversations by the end of the book. And it kind of becomes Mary Shelley's stand-in in a way, who's sort of decrying all these different forms of, uh, you know, prejudice and bias and, like, lack of understanding, lack of tolerance and open-mindedness. Um, so I, you know, I, that's one of the great things about the novel, of course, and then flash forward to the film, I think we can read the creature as kind of a me metaphor for a lot of things, but uh, among them, I think, would be James Wales and Colin Clive's experience of uh, not being able to necessarily be who they are. You know, James Whale, perhaps, is an open gay man, was, you know, um, took that risk. Um, but, like, certainly, I think they were speaking to their experience a little bit of their... They felt a lot of sympathy for the creature because... That's what the monster has always been in the story of Frankenstein. It's kind of a metaphor for um, the cruelty of humanity and not trying to understand people from other communities. So, you know, both the novel and the film do that in different ways. I wanted to touch a little bit more about um, Mary Shelley herself and then um, some themes quick and then we can open it up to a real uh, question and answer and feedback from you all. So Mary Shelley's mother was one of the earliest, recognized, recognized now as one of the earliest feminists. Um, she was writing in the 1700s, or late 1700s, and was published and had, um, oh, well, oh boy, okay. Uh, that's all right, I'll keep talking, but I will look it up too, because it deserves justice, which 
um, is, is, is echoed in the opening credits of this film. I had this down in my bad category. Uh, Mary Shelley, I don't know if you noticed, she was credited in the beginning as Mrs. Percy Shelley. And I was like, oh, that just doesn't age well. No, um, Percy Shelley himself, a great romantic uh, writer, but not the founder of science fiction, as it's argued Mary Shelley is. And I think that it's important to recognize that for sure. Um, and then just talking about themes a little bit, um, just my one thing that I wanted to touch on. I, I always think about um, religion with this story and Shelley's critique and then Wales' critique and more subversion of of religious aspects and faith. And what I hadn't noticed before in this film, it's the first scene when the monster enters the room and Henry's saying, he hasn't been exposed to light yet. And he opens up a, um, a skylight and the light from, as I saw it, from heaven is, is washing on him and it's very serene and peaceful and the monster's just like, oh, this is nice. And then the next light we see is Fritz's torch coming up from the bowels of hell. And it and that is like I saw that as the switch for the monster and he's and Fritz is this little devil that just keeps harassing him and is the one who goads him into the villainy that would come. That's yep. that that that's my one thematic take that I wanted to I was really excited to share. Uh yeah, no I, I love that theme, I love that metaphor. Um I, Mike, I feel like you're very anxious to say something. That's, I find it interesting that you said that because, you know, the the abnormal brain is put in him, and it creates an interesting nature-nurture, you know, idea of was he always, you know, going to be murderous, or did Fritz and other people go that into him? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that scene where he's trying to hold the sunlight in his hands is so touching and still extremely poignant, I think. And then we see that later, too, with the accidental drowning of the girl, I think still one of the most sad and effective scenes in this movie because, of course, he's not trying to kill her. It's he's, he has this childlike curiosity, and, of course, it backfires immediately, and then this lynch mob comes after him. So, so yeah, I mean, it's a really powerful... That's kind of like the the arc of the entire story that... He probably is born an innocent, and then the world corrupts him. And I think that's kind of a timeless story, you know? Yeah, he kills three people, and none of them are cold-blooded. It's either perceived self-defense or, or an accident. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which I think is important to unlocking the sympathy of the character. And I looked it up. Mary Shelley's mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, she wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Woman in 1792, which is something I had always heard of, and I didn't connect it to the mother of Frankenstein. So a rich literary history there, translating into a rich cinematic history. Anything else? Uh, I was feeling like we could, we can go ahead and open it up to some more feedback, comments from the audience. Um, definitely excited to get into the audience conversation, but I, one of the things that I loved about the silent version too from 1910 is just the crazy ending, which is of course wildly different than what happens in the novel where the monster doesn't feel love, is disgusted by itself and just disappears. Like it just vanishes into thin air, which is um, a, such a weird ending and you know, like actually kind of like a perfect distillation of the story's themes in a way, you know? Um, I was not expecting that. This is the first time that I saw the silent version in its entirety. And um, 
yeah, it's, I just thought that was crazy. I also think, this kind of goes back to Mike's question from before, but like the fact that like movies at that time were kind of a novelty or whatever. Um, the 1910 version reminded me of some of the old Georges Méliès shorts where it's all about like tricks that you can do with the camera and like double impositions and like what kind of illusions can you create through cinema. Um, so yeah, I, I just thought that the 1910 silent version was really fun and really unique in ways that I was not totally expecting. Word. Um, so yeah, I don't know, like, let's, if you had any, if you had any other thoughts or questions or curiosities, I think we could spend uh, a little bit here diving uh, deeper into the film. Yeah. In 2017, uh, Michael Shapiro, the composer, uh, had the Concordia College Orchestra in Moorhead perform a score uh, for this version of Frank's which is, you know, largely absent of music. And I was just curious what you thought about, you know, in those in the early 30s stuff, you know, before the leitmotif became kind of the dominant form. It's, you know, Dracula, same thing. There was the um, the quartet that did a score that they put on a DVD later, and you can kind of turn it on or turn it off. And I, you know, I wonder if you think it was missing something by not having more music in it. Um, yes, I have some thoughts, uh, and then I can. I could, I could pass, I won't pass the mic to you, but I could pass the mic to you. Um, so I am, I'm an acting nerd. That's my trained background. So I didn't always pick up on the lack of music. It never bothered me. I then had some friends, they were like, I was like network doesn't have a soundtrack either. And I was watching network and I was like, oh man, it was so great. The acting and blah, blah, blah. And my friend was like, it was okay. There's no music. I was like, what? <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Um, so in short, it doesn't bother me, but I did notice its lack here. Um, maybe that's a you know in the bad category, something that doesn't age well. Um, yeah, I, I would love to see it rescored uh, the way Philip Glass did the 31 Dracula for sure. Uh, I love the lack of a musical score for the most part. I also do love projects where you know, um, certain elements are revisited, so I do like the scores that were recently created for movies like this, but but I, I love silence in movies because I feel like nowadays, not just nowadays, but like, I feel like there's always the assumption that something has to be happening. Like, that's kind of Hollywood's model, right? Like, tell the story as quickly and as clearly as possible. So I feel like when you have silence, that kind of invites you to like, just be in the moment a little bit. And I think it's really um, appreciated in this movie when we first see the close-ups of the monster and it kind of cuts from like sort of a medium shot to then a closer shot to then like an extreme close-up and there's not really sound effects or music in that moment and I think it makes it more chilling um, I, I you know I really appreciated that in that moment speaking of music um, I actually did note and I'm just now realizing there is music in the movie in terms of the the festival the wedding festival there is background music and I noticed that in this watching because that very happy music is contrasted with the father carrying his limp dead daughter through the streets. And I was like, that's classic James Whale. He is, he's, he's, he's making it hard for us to enjoy something by undercutting it with this horror. And, and maybe other ways too. Like maybe there are some, maybe some scarier moments that it was like, oh, that's actually kind of campy. And the humor in this film is something I definitely wanted to ask your opinions on. If it works, if it doesn't work, and if it landed, I guess. Uh, so, I don't know. I guess that's the question now, and then 
and then we'll jump off. Yeah, in the back. You mentioned the father, uh, Baron Frankenstein, earlier. It felt too, he was way too out there for me. He was, like he was in a totally different movie or <laughs> working with a different director. Um, it was just too much. Interesting. Um, how, I mean, you're not wrong. Um, <laughs> like, right? Baron Frankenstein is like, he, he walked in from another sound studio. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this enormous pipe. Did, did the humor of Fritz affect you the same way? I didn't think he was funny. Yeah, I didn't either, actually. I thought he was kind of a disturbed individual, and there's sort of an abusive relationship happening there. So uh, between, between um, Henry and, and Fritz, it's definitely, his, Henry has zero respect for him. Is definitely using him. It definitely seems to be something wrong with him in addition to his physical abnormality. And that seems really icky to me hmm. uh, on the part of Henry Frankenstein. Well, and, it feels yeah. like Henry did not communicate the purpose of this monster, the Fritz. <laughs> <laughs> I want to create life and it's going to be amazing. And Fritz was like, oh, sweet, I can really like abuse this monster. That sounds awesome. You were seeing Fritz, he's always abused. He needs someone he can abuse and further on down. Not funny. <laughs> okay, well, he sees the skeleton and he drops the brain. It was funny. Yeah. <laughs> Ironically, I think one of the, to a 2022 audience, one of the funniest parts of this movie is when he throws the little girl in the lake. She's my. <laughs> yeah, man, laugh right. <laughs> I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Um, a hand in the back, and I can come back to that. <laughs> There's no doubt, though, again, Bride of Frankenstein is wildly funny. Uno O'Connor's shrieks and the, you know, the, the built-in humor that Whale is lacing through that entire movie, very pronounced. And I think the tone, he handles the tone really, really well um, to, you know, like you were talking about earlier, Look! Look at some of the queer, you know, the queer, the queer themes. Um, the even the title. I think it was in the BFI monograph. They talked a lot about who is the Bride of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. There's no definite. Uh, there's no article, right? The title is just Bride of Frankenstein. Be Elizabeth. The bride could be Pretorius. Mm -hmm. the bride could could be, you know, Frankenstein himself. Mm. Yeah, I like I like that. Um, all that. I mean, the Bride of Frankenstein is way funnier than this, than this movie. Yet more, maybe more apparently funny. Yeah. yeah, for sure. What's the deal with the ending, do you think? Uh, it's a weird oh. final scene that I'd like to hear you guys talk about. That was added at the last minute by the studio. It was supposed to end with basically the burning of the windmill. And then they were like, oh, we have to show that Henry survives. And actually, Colin Clive was no longer, I don't know if he was no longer in the United States, but at, le at the very least, he was no longer in California. So that was a stand-in that we see in that last shot. And that's why we never really get a closer shot of like him interacting with Elizabeth. Uh, it's very awkward. It doesn't work very well. But it's one of many examples of like an awkwardly inserted ending. Yeah. I agree with that. I don't. I wouldn't personally have put it in at the end. It does feel tacked on, but maybe Whale was salvaging something. I just thought this time, because I was ready to write it off. Uh, the final toast again is to the to a son of the House of Frankenstein, and I think who the, who's the son in this movie? I think it's the monster. There and and there's a shot of Henry is real quick uh, at with the first toast. It, there's like a close up of Henry's face, and he's like looking all brooding, like he does. And I was like. 
Oh, he's thinking, I have a son already. Yikes. Yeah. I thought <laughs> that too, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, sir. Um, Waldman. We haven't really talked about Waldman, played by um, local Edward Van Sloan from Chaska. Yeah. yeah. Didn't even know. Oh, I love him even more now. That's great. So, um, what about Waldman? Um, was there a specific question about him? Just, um, he, he's a prominent cast member, but you know we haven't really yeah. discussed his character at all. It, like, you know, he played um, Van Helsing in Dracula, so and there's not a similar character in the novel, I don't mm. believe. So was this an addition by the studio because of him playing Van Helsing in Dracula? That's interesting. Right. There's no um, Waldman in the novel. There is a professor who is kind of that character. Um, but Edward Van Sloan, I don't, my initial, my gut thoughts about this character is that he's there for exposition. Like in the beginning, he's, he's, he's leading us down the science of, of all this and, and giving the one, he's the one giving the information to Victor. He does get killed by the monster for wanting to dissect it. So I thought maybe there's like some interesting morality there of, okay, is this just a creature or is it a human being now? And the thoughts, but you know, the the dilemma between what's medically right versus murder. But that's great. Do you have any thoughts on Waldman? Um, I guess just a little thought about Waldman. I think maybe if there is some thematic intent, maybe he's he would be the good side of science, and Doctor Frankenstein is the sort of demented side of science, where he is trying to play God, and you know realizes too late the um, horror that he's created. Whereas Doctor Waldman seems a little bit more to be in like the Western European, like I'm trying to help humanity sort of legacy of science. So I guess like that kind of contrast between the two, I kind of picked up on a little bit. Um, I did want to say one more thing, sorry to go back to like the humor element, but one part of this movie, Frankenstein, um, that I think works in that way, and maybe is leading up to Bride of Frankenstein a little bit, is when Elizabeth sees the monster in her like bridal suite or whatever, and she screams, and then the monster does his little imitation of a scream, or whatever it is, the like uh, old gangsters like sound effect that he makes. And like it, I, I, you know, like a lot of people in here laughed at that. And I, I, I would like to read that as intentionally funny. Like maybe he's trying to like imitate whatever noise she's making because he doesn't really understand what it is. Um, I think that that kind of leads into sort of like the weird, campy sense of humor in Bride of Frankenstein a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that noise that he makes is one that um, Peter Boyle imitates. <laughs> in, you know, like if you watch yeah. this bride and son all three together and then watch young frankenstein you're like oh wow they just lifted everything from those three movies yeah and i think that's why i i can't help but laugh at fritz a little bit when he drops the brain because i just keep thinking of marty feldman as igor um so speaking of frankenstein um imitating um when initial reaction would be that he is just kind of being frantic 
and not further submerging her. But I see, I, I, I understand both sides of the argument. We're, we are left in the dark, probably intentionally. I don't think James Whale left anything, you know, unintentionally. Interesting. It seemed like to maybe cover, though, if I, I think they didn't want to have a girl in the water, like, drowning. It seems like they're intentionally just trying to cover it so you don't see that. That's kind of what I took, which was interesting. That's kind of what I took it, is maybe just for that audience not showing a yeah. small child. Well, we had a hand, Ellen. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I read that as he didn't understand why she didn't float like the flowers. There is another interesting kind of censorship backstory to that because that scene of him throwing the girl in the lake was censored from a lot of initial prints of this movie. Certain states would not allow that scene to be showed, uh, shown. So, so their solution almost made it even worse because we do see the shot in the original, ver the original prints that kind of circulated in wide release. We see the monster reaching for the girl, and then it cuts, so then like the next thing that we see involving that little girl is the father carrying her in his arms. And that leaves it open to your imagination where the monster might have done something even worse. He might have intentionally, brutally killed her, maybe something even worse than that. So in a way, that's a case of censorship actually making it arguably more disturbing than what we actually see here. Right, because then it's not an awkward moment of the monster throwing her in the lake. Interesting. Okay, at this time, um, we're gonna keep it going with you all, but we're gonna we're gonna get to our breakdown now: the good, the bad, and the downright campy. So right now, we're gonna start with the good. Just um, if you have any anything good that that caught your eye, that you're like, yes, that works, love that moment. Now's the time we want to hear that for the episode. Karloff, Karloff, Karloff. <laughs> so yeah. you haven't said much about Wales panache, and that 360 degree pan that has to be the first example of that in motion picture at the end in when the windmills burning no absolutely that's an incredible shot i was also blown away by the long tracking shot during that wedding celebration and we see that actually several times first of all we see it when everybody's celebrating it's a very happy moment and the camera just keeps on going and going and then we see it again when the father is carrying maria in his arms and of course there's a lot more bitter dramatic irony uh, in that moment i so those tracking shots I thought were amazing. The 360 degree pan is incredible and, you know, in a way everything's kind of come full circle. So there's definitely a lot of symbolism there as well. Do you know, Matt? Was that, had Murnau done that? Or was mm. he, maybe was that the first? That's, do you know? Uh, I, I'm not totally sure offhand. Murnau is a great comparison. I'm thinking of a movie like The Last Laugh where like the camera is like literally flying all over the place and on bungee cords and stuff like that. That movie's from 1926, I think. Um, but yeah, the comparison to German cinema, and in, in particular German expressionism, is really apt, I think. There's one part where the monster is sort of like locked in a cellar, and we see some like dramatic shadows coming through, and they're just like going in all kinds of like crazy diagonal directions, which could have come out of like, you know, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari or something. Um, so yeah, totally agree about Wales Panache. It's a really visually incredible movie. Edward Van Sloan's office is full of skulls, I noticed. And it's just like, whoa, there's a lot of great gothic, um, expressionistic imagery yeah. in the film. Anything else that we really liked about this movie? There's a little shot of the, the something about that was like, like... The operating table? The Yeah, the operating table. It's just iconic. It's an iconic scene. Out Alive, Alive Clive's performance I actually was really impressed by. I, I hadn't seen this movie in years. I was just like, oh, this is a good performance by any standard. So I, I thought, and... Um, even if other areas of the acting in the movie are a little bit dated, I thought he was, he really knew the movie that he was in. And I can see that. In that moment, 
Um, I like how we don't see what is happening on top of the tower. We see the table go up and we see a bunch of flashing lights, but we're left in the dark as to what, what the heck is going up on up there. The overall set design, well, really just the entire production design is amazing. Like all of the sets, all of the uh, costumes, everything. Um, not just the monster makeup, but like every aspect of the film is amazing. Yeah, that art direction um, is just so delicious. Like I just loved watching it. And again, Bride of Frankenstein ups that even more. <laughs> and it's incredible. Um, let us move on to the bad category. Uh, what doesn't, what didn't strike you as, oh, that didn't work, or that didn't stand the test of time, or maybe a little dated? What, what year was it supposed to be? <laughs> <laughs> Yo, um, 1931, but it's also like, I've read some fan theories that this film's actually set in 1900. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's a little uh, questionable. Did that bother you, though? It was very apparent to me that they were not trying to um, place the costuming or the even the science of it in a past time. It seemed like they were like, we made the movie in 1931. It's 1931, <laughs> accept this for what it is, even though some of the aspects of it seemed much more, like they, they belonged in a much earlier time. Um, locking women in rooms. <laughs> yeah. Like when all of the men go to hunt for the monsters and just like all of the women staying at home, all looking very scared. Like just, they're all just dolls. If they don't have a purpose, even though they definitely <laughs> like are real people. And, but you know, that just that. I think that's valid, very well said. The lack of agency on Elizabeth's part in as a driving force in her fiance's story could be so much more. He could, I don't know. This is necessarily bad because it's almost a genre convention, but the fear of science because of religion and the plane of God, you know, it's one of those things that it's kind of fascinating. And it, you know, it's just kind of part of the genre, don't you think? But it really, there is this way it kind of has a demonic view of science in the medical world, right? Yeah, I think so for sure. And I, you know, I, I think the novel does such a brilliant job of like having that theme uh, for sure. Kind of, you know, the, the novel's a little more romantic than it would be kind of rationalist, I guess is a way to put it. But I think the novel also does such a good job of like tying in like various other allegories, I guess. Like I, I remember thinking that the novel is also such a good metaphor for the artistic experience and like creating something and then having it go wildly awry, you know, uh, as well as like for the act of childbirth, which we've kind of already talked about before a little bit. So, um, so yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I, I, I think like for me in the bad category, like it's sort of uh, like an act of comparison, I think is why I would put this in the bad category, which I wouldn't really, I don't think it's a bad movie by any means, but I think like comparing it to Mary Shelley's novel as well as Bride of, as Bride of Frankenstein, um, I, you know, it's maybe inferior to those two things, but those are both incredible works of art. So, um, but I think you're absolutely right about that theme. Yeah. Um, Victor, um, yeah. Pretty bland. Yeah, that yeah, I like what is Victor doing in this story? If we had problems with the father, I was like here's just this like I said, just this kind of wet blanket of a character. Um just a and by that I mean he's just kind of on the sidelines. He's not an active force in the story. 
He's there to take care of Elizabeth, as Henry says. Not much else. Yeah. The names. Yeah. Yeah. If like, why? Why is Victor Frankenstein not the main character? Mm-hmm. Right. So in the novel, and yeah, right. In the novel, the main character is Victor Frankenstein. As far as I can tell in my research, it was totally arbitrary. It's based on this movie's based on the play, and the playwright just changed the name. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> but but then why do they give the other character the name Victor? Like what? <laughs> change his name to I don't know Max or something I, I don't know the opening scene very confusing mm-hmm. yes. yeah. Elizabeth keeps saying Victor we have to go find <laughs> what is what? going on <laughs> uh, this isn't necessarily a bad thing so sorry but the, the comment about the treatment of women in the story just it just remind me of the scene though where um, the Baron's like Give us those servants. This is wasted on them. I thought that was an interesting little note about class. Like, oh, it's being kind of a, a, a jerk, right? I mean, more that just put it in a PG way right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was a nice little note in an uh, interesting note in there about class and how these people are being treated. And, yeah. We only have a few minutes left, so I want to get to our downright campy, and then we'll rate the film as it, you know, if it stands the test of time, according to you all. So just uh, a couple of points. By campy, I mean, you know, something that was, that was funny, something that, that was a bit humorous, something that made you laugh or just you went, ha, look at that. <laughs> In the back, yeah. Why was there a skeleton hanging by in the cemetery? <laughs> I did notice that this time, too. It looked like a Halloween decoration. Yeah, that was a uh, convict, I think. It's supposed to be a, a, a hang, a, you know, would have been a convicted person. But there's also the skeleton in the, uh, thank you. There's also the skeleton in like the, um, uh, the classroom or whatever, the laboratory. Uh, and then there's the, the like, I, I think a campy moment where Fritz goes in to steal the brain and then like accidentally like the skeleton starts bouncing up and down. So uh, yeah, I, I think again, there's kind of a funny link with like the silent version where there's like a cheap like uh, skeleton just like front and center in the frame in that like early scene, you know? Um, I love that both movies have that kind of like, yeah, can't be old school horror vibe, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With, with Fritz, and I understand like he has the hunchback and he carries the cane, but that guy can move awfully fast and nimbly and fly up and down stairs with this cane. That is, yeah. Yeah. That's another instance where I couldn't like help but think of young Frankenstein and the hump moving all the time on Igor or Igor. <laughs> I thought the prologue was the campiest part of the entire movie. The breaking of the fourth wall, the warning. You know, it's yeah. high camp. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, the monster's noises, the <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's, there's a lot of good camp to go, a lot of good camp to go around. I, I, you know, the, I think the father character, for sure. Um, uh, yeah, Fritz, I mean, I'm just kind of repeating what, what you all have said already, but yeah, did you have any anything else? No, uh, go, go ahead and give us our four categories, then we can rate yeah. this baby. Let's do it. Let's, uh, you know, let's, let's get the vote. Let's see how we all feel about Frankenstein from 1931. I have to pull up the actual Google Doc because I don't remember our ratings. I'm sorry, Vincent. <laughs> I feel like you're quietly judging me right now. No, <laughs> Um, so, like, I'm going to give you the rating. If anybody agrees with this rating, then just clap, shout out, say that you agree, uh, make some noise. So, the lowest ranking, it is not worth revisiting. It definitely does not stand the test of time. Anybody? <laughs> that makes me happy. Our 
Second last ranking here, second lowest. Uh, it may be historically significant or just fun, but it does not stand the test of time. Anyone? Okay. All right. Hey, all right. Yeah, that's fair. There's a lot of aspects that don't yeah. stand the yeah. test of time. I just gave me. it yeah. one clap. Yeah. 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 I like that method of giving like one clap for one ranking and maybe more claps for another ranking. I like that. Cheating the system a little bit, but I like it. Um, all right, so our uh, second highest ranking. There may be some antiquated moments, but overall it's great and stands the test of time. Anyone? Nice, good to hear. I feel like that's probably the majority of the audience, but we'll see because we have uh, one more ranking la left, our highest ranking. It is a timeless classic and definitely stands the test of time. Had somebody stand up on that one. I love that. All right. <laughs> so that's yeah. Yeah. Um. We're gonna we're gonna end it there. But thank you so much, everybody. Um. Uh, Matt and I. Our podcast is Camp Kaiju Monster Movie Reviews. Wherever you podcast, you can find us on Instagram and Patreon. Where for as low as five dollars a month, we're just giving you all the bonus content. Really, that's the only tier that matters at this point. Um. So go check us out there. Um. Like you said. We can you, you can find us wherever. And outside, grab a sticker, um, suggested donations. If you're so kind, we can we can do this again. We would really love to. I thought this went really well, um, and we can't thank you enough. So give it up for yourselves one more time. Thank you. And I'll say it since you're too kind to everyone donate if you did. <laughs> well, the last thing I have to say is, and until next time. Stay campy. Uh, one last thing, thanks to the Trilon again as well. Uh, very, very amazing hosts. Thank you. And thank you all for hanging out. If you liked what you heard, please tell a friend, leave a rating and review, and visit CampKaijuMovieReviews.com, Instagram, or even Patreon for more monster movie content. Links in our bio. We can't thank you enough. Camp Kaiju is recorded with your help in the Twin Cities with music by Terrence Jackson. Oh, and before I forget, Camp Kaiju is sponsored by BanditsEmporium.com, where you can shop exclusive monster-inspired t-shirts with part of those proceeds supporting this show. BanditsEmporium.com. Find the link in our bio. As they say, we sell shirts. And again, as Camp Kaiju says... Thank you, friends. And until next time, stay campy. He's in the house. He's upstairs. <laughs> Whew. Thank you so much, everybody. Can't tell you how much fun Matt and I had at the Trilon. I uh, just wanted to give you a quick update. Our next episode will not be with Gaze to the D. We are pushing that special crossover event until December. Until then, we are going to get down and rowdy with some family-friendly kaiju films, starting off with Son of Godzilla from 1967. That'll be our next episode. After that, well, it may not be Godzilla per se, but definitely another classic favorite from the Showa era. So stay tuned. And before I go, special thanks to our newest patron on Patreon. That's Frank Olson. Can't do it without your support, my man. And thank you to everyone else for checking out 
all the great perks on Patreon. Until next time, I sure hope you are enjoying your leftover Halloween candy.